Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Anna Schwabe, a cannabis geneticist. She has a PhD from the University of Northern Colorado, where her research focused on evaluating genotypic and phenotypic variations in cannabis. In this episode, we discuss consumer-relevant phenotypes of cannabis, like the smell, and she reveals that our sense of smell is actually a very reliable indicator when we're in a dispensary trying to identify certain cannabis strains. We also discuss why genetically identical cannabis plants may um, produce different levels of THC or CBD or even express other differing characteristics, even when they are grown in the same environment. And we talk about how we could potentially improve the cannabis shopping experience so consumers can have more insight into the phenotypes of the strains that they are purchasing. Well, first of all, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to kind of start um, towards the beginning of your career in cannabis science. And um, yeah, what what kind of piqued your interest in this topic and what what kind of got it all started for you? Um, So it's kind of a fun story. So my background um, is in cellular and molecular biology with my uh, bachelor's degree. And then I have a master's in plant population genetics, um, but it was more conservation genetics. Um, And then I uh, managed the genetic lab at the Denver Botanic Gardens and had a volunteer who worked under me who was in the cannabis industry as well. So I heard a lot of stuff from him. And then when they legalized cannabis in Colorado, one of my friends was talking to me and she mentioned that she found this amazing strain that did everything she wanted to and more. Like she'd go about her day and um, it made her feel good and fixed all, you know, whatever she was using it for, anxiety or whatever. But she could only buy it at this one dispensary, even though there were other dispensaries that sold the same strain. If she bought it from somewhere else, it didn't do, it wasn't the same. And I thought that was really weird because when I worked at the Denver Botanic Gardens, I learned a lot, which included um, that cannabis was largely propagated through cloning. And I thought that is very strange because... If these strains are clones, then it should be the same no matter where you go. And so I got um, I got interested in trying to figure out this question. And I approached my advisor from my master's and said, there's some really good questions that need to be addressed in the cannabis industry. And with what I know about genetics and my um, my background in population genetics, I think we can address some of these questions and figure out what's going on. 
And of course, my advisor said, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> but I eventually convinced him um, that this is this is a good project. And it, there was a, um, a lot of questions that needed to be answered and that I had a good case to do a PhD um, looking at variation in cannabis, uh, approaching it from both a consumer point of view and using genetic tools to answer some of these questions. And so did your, did your research, well, when you were starting your PhD, did it all center around this question? Did it all center around why is there, why is my friend only able to purchase this one strain at this one dispensary? And it's different for, um, you know, it's different when she buys the same thing at other places. Did it all come from there? Or how, how did you go about designing your research? Yeah, so, it, so initially, um, we were going to spin the project as, so hops and cannabis are in the same family. And I was going to do hop, hops research, so humulus, lupulus, um, and I was going to do something with that and then kind of have a, a side project, do the cannabis thing, and maybe do some like um, some kind of testing with the sex chromosomes or something like that. But it, totaled, it totally changed. It ended up being 100% cannabis. I didn't do anything with hops. Um, the first question was the, the genetic variation within strains. Um, was the first project that we did, and we found what we found, which was there is a lot of variation, genetic variation, where there shouldn't be any within the within strains with the same name uh, purchased from different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we ended up coming across some um, some cannabis from the National Institute um, on Drug Abuse, right? So NIDA. And because what our chemistry department was working on THC extraction and things like that. And so they had, they had a DEA license to work on cannabis and that's the, that's the product they were, you know, provided to work with. So I was able to extract DNA from that. And we thought that we would do a, like a, like a spectrum of cannabis because like a genetic analysis of the spectrum of different kinds of cannabis. So we had like wild, uh, wild grown, wild collected cannabis. So feral, just collected in the mountains or the ditch weed or whatever. Then we had cultivated hemp strains. We had the the samples from NIDA. And then we also put in some high CBD strains that wouldn't be considered hemp, but because they were too high in THC, but also had very low THC, but high CBD. And then we also included samples that were labeled as indica sativa or or hybrids because we just wanted to see like what does the genetic spectrum look like mm-hmm. um, so that was question number two and then while um while i was working on that paper um i was contacted by avery gilbert who is um i don't know what his technical title is but he's basically a scientist he is interested in olfaction and sensory perceptions specifically in for aromas and scents and things like that um he contacted me and he was basically i knew where he was coming from when he contacted me but what he wanted to do was um figure out if differences in genetics so like if you have let's say five blue dream samples one of them is clearly genetically different can people pick up that genetic difference from just smelling the samples because there's a lot of variation, phenotypic variation, which includes the chemotype, 
Um, mm-hmm. with, within- could you could you explain kind of the difference between phenotypes and chemotypes for for listeners who who aren't familiar with that? So phenotype is the physical characteristics of an organism. So things that you can see, things that you can perceive, um, and so this would include the morphology. So what the leaves look like, the height of the plant, the density of the branches. Um, the density of the flowers, the colors of the, you know, whatever. Uh, but it also includes the phytochemicals that you can um, measure through perception. So, so terpenes would be one, um, So because you can smell those. Mm-hmm. Uh, cannabinoids would be another because those have effects on you. And so, mm-hmm. that all, so that would be the chemotype is the chemicals that are part of the phenotype. It sounds like you're focused on consumer-relevant phenotypic traits, which might be like the scent of cannabis rather than the shape of the leaves of the plant. So beyond the scent, are there other phenotypes that a consumer would care about? And are there other phenotypes that they might recognize or might pick up on before they actually try the cannabis strain? So generally, you know, consumers are not privy to um, going into a, a dispensary and seeing the grow the, the plants growing, right. so they really have no idea what the plant looked like prior to them putting it on the shelf. There are differences in the flowers, so some flowers are really really dense and heavy, um, mm-hmm. and then some flowers are fluffy and and kind of um, not very dense, and they burn quicker and things like that. But yeah, def- I mean, the number one thing people are going to look at THC content. So uh, a lot of the pricing for various products are, are centered on THC content. So the higher the THC content, the higher the price is going to be. And then the other thing it, that consumers are looking for is what does it smell like? Does it, you know, what does it, you know, they'll smell it and they'll be like, okay, that smells good. Or, oh, you know, I don't like the smell of that. And so they're not going to purchase that because if you don't like the way it smells, chances are you're just not going to like it. So um, those are pretty much the phenotypic characteristics that consumers are going to be interested in. Mm-hmm. So talk to me more. Yeah, talk to me more about this research that you did on cannabis aromas. And it sounds like you were trying to determine whether genetically inconsistent samples um, within a commercial strain. So it sounds so maybe you could explain this better than I could, but it sounds like you were looking at, two strains or two samples that didn't have the same genetics and whether their um, aromas were similar or different. Correct. That's exactly. Yeah. So we, so we were limited in the number of samples that we could use because uh, we were using human subjects and they were smelling things. And Mm -hmm. after a while people just, you know, their, their olfaction gets burned out. So we wanted to make sure that we limited the sample size um, to make sure that each participant didn't uh, that we were getting accurate information basically mm-hmm. so what, what I did is I picked the most popular strains that I could find that we knew had different aroma profiles based on previous research from Dr. Gilbert went around to a bunch of dispensaries bought a bunch um, I think we we ended up analyzing 40 different samples um, and we found genetically cohesive samples so identical um, samples like Blue Dream was one of them. Um, mm. So we had four that were genetically identical, and then one that was clearly genetically different. But they were all—all all five of them were purchased from different dispensaries, mm. so they presumably weren't grown 
under the same conditions. They weren't harvested at the same time. They probably weren't cured the same way. Who knows how long they were sitting on the shelf before they got sold. So there was some variation just in that alone. Um, but the genetics were identical except for one sample. And we did this for several strains. Um, and it was a double blind. So I, I did the genetic analysis and then we, num we, we um, used random numbers to, to you know, label all of the jars. And then I handed them off to Dr. Avery, and he conducted the human part of the study. And all he knew was this, the numbers on the jars. It wasn't, he didn't know what was what. Mm. And so the participants, I think we had about 50 participants, um, pretty much equal portions of guys and gals. Um, they were given like an iPad that had a check all that apply um, list of various scents. And they were given a jar, smell this, and then go down the list of, sense and check everything that you smell. So there was all kinds of stuff like flowery, um, mint, sage, coffee, tobacco, skunk, uh, diesel, cheese, everything. There were 40 different scents that they could choose mm -hmm. from. So, they, so each participant sniffed all 15 samples, gave their feedback, and then we gathered that data and we tri we, then we were, I was tasked with how to try to figure out if people could tell that the one sample that was genetically different from the others could, did that, was that reflected in the reported smells? Ooh, that, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So what did you find out? What, what were the results? <laughs> it turns out, so, and we did have a control group. So we had, I think it was Durban poison that all three samples were identical. Um, mm -hmm but from different dispensaries, they were all, you know, um, and, but the scents were all over the place. Like uh, when I got the data back, I was like, Oh my gosh, how am I ever going to figure out how to analyze this? And so I talked to a, um, a statistician who suggested that I categorize the scents because there's 40 of them, right? Mm -hmm. Categorize them. And it didn't like, there is no lexicon for a scent category. So I was kind of left up left to my own devices on how I was going to group these scents. And I did two different lexicons. One that was based on some information I found online for cannabis. Uh, so grouping into four different categories. And I think it was like earthy smells and then fruity smells. And then I don't even know. But anyway, so I grouped them and, and we used two different lexicons. It turns out that the genetic outlier was different in all cases. So, for example, Mob Boss is described as earthy, uh, piney, um, you know, those kinds of scents, those kind of dark, manly scents. Um, but the outlier, almost everybody, the overwhelming number of people um, reported more flowery and sweet scents, which is not what the other samples were described as and, it, and, and not how Mob Boss, Boss, bleh, Mob Boss is described online either. So it was very, the outlier was very different from those genetic consensus samples. And that was the case in all three, um, all three strains that we had a genetic outlier. Mm. And yeah, so it was going to be an interesting story either way. Either these genetic outliers were misidentified because they smelled like Mob Boss or Blue Dream, or people would be able to pick up that it was different 
saying that genetic outliers can also, you can also tell that it's not quite right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's so interesting. But so my first question on that is what, what were for the participants, how were the participants selected and were they, were they all, you know, experienced cannabis users or how, you know, how, 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 how much does that actually affect the study? Were they was it a totally random sample? Because also, you know, my 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 interpretation of what smells earthy and piney might be different from yours. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how you can control that when you're doing um, a test like this or a study like this. So it was a random sampling of people that signed up themselves. So we put it was basically uh, recruiting through social media. Um, so people would sign up for it and it was everything from cannabis experts, connoisseurs, longtime users, first time users, never used, have only used a little bit. Like, um, it, there really wasn't a certain type of person that signed up. It really was like, a you know, a good sampling of the general population, I think. Um, and I was worried about that also, like, who are these people that are going to sign up to smell weed? Where did they come from? <laughs> What's their expertise they come from? being able to smell things? Right. <laughs> Do they have any expertise on, on what they're smelling? And the answer to that is no. But Avery, being a scent scientist, knows this. And, has, you know, I mean, people smell things. You know, you know what coffee oh, absolutely. like. Yeah. You know what tobacco smells like. You know what mint smells like. So it's not really a long stretch to ask people to, to identify the smells that they smell. Some people are very um, cautious about only checking a few boxes thinking, you know, oh, uh, you know, may, maybe I smell, maybe I don't smell that. I just want to pick the ones that are like the most prolific smells and they'll only pick, you know, two or three boxes. There are other people that will check like, you know, 25 out of 40 boxes. Mm, okay. And Either way, that's fine because we had quite a large um, number of participants. Those those sort of tail end individuals are going to be washed out by the sheer amount of data that we collected. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get a pretty good representation of the overall population and how just general people are going to perceive these smells. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and then once you had, so once you had this data and you were obviously able to prove that the genetic outliers smelled different than mm -hmm. the ones of ge genetic similarities, did you, what, what are kind of your reflections on why that dispensary didn't catch it or why they are selling a blue dream or a Durban poison that has this scent that isn't aligned like, how, how did it get past the growers? How did it get past the dispensary owners? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. And it's, it's there's there's no easy answer for this because uh, the cannabis industry in general has been, historically, had no regulations. Um, there's no genetic test to confirm that what you have in your hot little hand is, is what you're actually growing. So mm -hmm. if you buy seeds from a supplier, they can give you anything basically, and say, yeah, this is Blue Dream. Blue Dream just happens to be a clone-only strain as far as I'm aware. So if you are getting sold Blue Dream seeds, chances are you're not getting Blue Dream anyway. Um, but, you know, the same thing is true for a clone. You take a clone from your friend down the street, they say, this is Purple Kush. You take it home, you label it as Purple Kush. 
that that person who gave it to you, unless they're the original developer of that strain, there's no way that person's going to know that what they have is, is Purple Kush. So there's lots of places along the whole supply chain where things can go awry and not necessarily anything nefarious or that anybody intentionally screwed it up. But, um, you know, there's, there, there can be, you were supplied with the wrong thing. It was labeled the wrong thing to begin with. And you just like, how would you know? Then there's also instances of like typos or bad handwriting where, um, where names get changed. Like I found one that was called, o or, uh, uh, sweet Island skink. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Sweet Island Skunk. <laughs> but <laughs> name <laughs> was Sweet Island Skink. Um, it 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 genetically resolved as as Sweet Island Skunk. So I'm okay. So they weren't doing like a clever breeding project. It was just no. a typo. No, not at all. And and there was um, I got two samples from a dispensary. One was labeled as Larry OG and the other one was labeled as Tahoe OG. They came back as genetically identical. And I'm like, okay, so somebody just mixed something up, typed in the wrong name or mislabeled it. Um, I've seen instances where you've got two samples and they've ended up in like the wrong genetic cluster, which means that somebody at some point switched the labels, maybe not on purpose, but you know, I don't see the cannabis industry historically having great record keeping. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, unless you have a genetic test, you just kind of have to go off of the information that you've been given and, and, and trust that what you have and what your label says is correct. But we know that's not always the case. Um, I do know that there are probably cases where uh, dispensaries might put a new label on a product to get it moved from the shelf. So, for example, if mm. they have, you know, a, a, a strain that's not selling well because it's not well-known or whatever, you know, slapping a Blue Dream label on it, that's going to move. People are going to buy that because it's popular, um, which could be another source of um, the mislabeling. I like to think that people aren't doing that, but, you know, <laughs> commerce... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah. definitely possible. It is. So, and that's one of the reasons why I never told anybody when I'm going to a dispensary who I who I was and what I was doing because I feel like when you do that, um, the others, you know, the the supplier is going to be more cognizant of making sure that they give you the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to be like a regular Joe Schmo consumer. I'll buy your Blue Dream, and take it home and yeah no, no and I, I think of course that's the best way to gather non-biased data so you're not going in um so there was no selection bias when you were initially gathering the samples exactly so so i am wondering um because so so let's look at an example of two different growers who maybe have the same start with the same genetics mm -hmm. Start with the same clone, you know, let's say it's a Blue Dream clone, maybe even from the same supplier. So they're starting with the same genetics, but it's also probably possible for the way that they grow it or their growing methodology f for um, that same, you know, that same plant, that same clone to be able to express different phenotypes. Mm -hmm. Do you see that happening a lot within the industry? I can 100% um, tell you that a clone from the same mother 
grown in the same greenhouse under the same conditions can turn out phenotypically different. Like, oh, even in the same conditions, it can turn out phenotypically different. Yeah. So I had, oh, a, wow. I had a greenhouse that was about maybe 10 feet by maybe four feet, six plants in it, um, three clones from one plant, three clones from another plant, all off the same mother plant, not even from different plants. Um, and so two plants that were supposed to be, that were clones, like I watched the guy make the clones, two plants that were clones from the same mother turned out totally different. Like one had curly leaves and just, it was a very different color. It had like three leaflets on a lot of leaves and they were like smooth, like the edges were smooth, the mm. top just really, really phenotypically different. And I have no explanation for that other than one of those plants was stressed for whatever reason. Um, it could be something growing conditions like one was closer to the door than the other. Or it could have been something that stressed one of them out in the cloning process. But something changed and it wasn't the genotype, mm. it was just the phenotype. And it wasn't the environment because they were grown in the same spot. Um, so the only thing that I can think of that is going on in that sort of situation is um, epigenetic response due to stress, which I don't want to tell you all about epigenetics, but basically plants have a way to respond to the environment without actually changing their, their um, genetic code. They can respond by upregulating or downregulating, changing their expression to try and survive a stressful situation. Um, and, yeah. and does that occur, does that occur more frequently? Do you think with cannabis plants or did you, ex did you witness that, um, working with other plants, maybe when you were at the botanical gardens as well? So epigenetics is a relatively new concept. A lot of studies on epigenetics have been centered around things like cancer, um, and, uh, have generally been studied in animals, not plants. There have been a few epigenetic studies in plants, and there have been, I think it's either two or three on uh, basically clonal organisms. There was one done on dandelions looking at epigenetic responses. Um, and the thing about epigenetic response is that you can, you can change your expression and that those changes are then passed on to the offspring. It's not a change in the genetic code. It's a change in uh, access to the to the genes. So either they're less available or more available for differences in expression. And if you take those plants out of the stressful condition or the different condition, all, if they're genetically identical, they will eventually, after a few generations, all get back to being the same thing. Um, but if you leave them in their stressful conditions, they'll keep going with the differences. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't been looked at in cannabis. I um, had to graduate, so <laughs> but I do an experiment where I grew mother plants and then I cloned, I picked mothers, right? And then I cloned them and I took, uh, I took DNA from the mother before and after cloning, took the, the DNA from the offspring, then I cloned the offspring, so clones of clones, and then I did clones of clones of clones. And then I did clones of clones of clones of clones. Oh, wow. Up to four. And I have all of the DNA from all of those individuals 
Um, and it's and and I know that I told you that the 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 genome doesn't change. So what am I looking at? What I'm looking at is methylation changes in the genome. So there is a technique that you can use to um, assess whether there's more methylation or less methylation in the genome from one generation to the next. And so that's basically what I was looking for. So how have these plants responded to just the cloning process? Are they stressed from just being cloned? Because I think that, you know, when you cut up a plant into little bits, there's going to be a stress response. Mm. So, and I don't know how that feeds into changes in phenotype over, you know, over the course of time. If you are constantly cloning something, you know, eventually you get like, some people call it like genetic drift, which is not the correct terminology. Um, but you start to lose your original phenotype. And I, I think it's due to epigenetic changes due to stress. So is that common that plants grown from clones are typically less genetically stable than plants grown from seed? Um, I know that people have ex expressed that, you know, it, it, you know, it depends on the plant. There are plants that um, can stay in veg for years mm -hmm. and produce clones and be just fine. Or there are some that after two seasons of cloning, they're done. Like they just mm -hmm. won't produce clones that are, are good anymore. And you can't, and you know, and you can try to clone the offspring or whatever, but they just kind of degenerate or change into something that wasn't what you had in the first place. And so it, it kind of just depends. And every individual is different. Some are super robust and they can take it. And some are just really not, not robust enough to withstand the pressures of being cloned. And I think mm -hmm. that's where we run into the degradation of, of um, genetics or mm -hmm. So I do think that cannabis cultivators do often use clones for commercial reasons mm -hmm. because it's a lot faster and more efficient mm -hmm. um, to get them to market than growing from seed. But, but also, I, I mean, I have heard that if you, you know, obviously if you want to have a consistent strain that you're continually producing, um, it, it is more effective to have it go from the clone. But but what you're saying also kind of goes goes against that that there could be these different uh, phenotypic varieties mm -hmm. uh, from the same clone. But still, is it more is it more stable to to go from a clone? And also, how many cycles from your research have you observed? Like how many how long can you use a mother plant um, to create clones uh, until you start experiencing or seeing some of these epigenetic differences? So in answer to that portion of the question, I'll say that it just depends. Like you can, okay. like a, you can have a super robust plant that will take, you know, that will be fine for years and years, um, and and will just take being cloned for for multiple years. I know I heard of one guy that's had one of his plants in veg for 19 years. Wow, I know, and I don't know how true that is. That's just what I heard. He could be lying. He could be totally legit. I don't know. But then, you know, you hear, oh, we had this really great strain, but it, you know, after two cycles, it was, it was done. We had to mm -hmm. get rid of it. So I think it just depends. Um, you might be lucky and get a good one. You might just have like an awesome strain that's only available for one season and then you'll never see it again. And that's kind of the problem with strains. And I know people, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's two camps. Are, are, should they be called strains or should they be called cultivars? I'm of the opinion they should be called strains because of this. Like once a mother, once, once that fleeting 
moment is gone once your mother plant has deteriorated and you can't use it anymore and you can't clone the offspring or that you know can't clone the clones that's no longer a thing anymore it's gone and so mm. that's why i think strain is appropriate um and it's you know i mean it's ca- cannabis relevant everybody knows what a strain is when you're talking about cannabis that's not up for debate um and and the other thing is yeah you can you can stabilize your genetics you can um you can inbreed a line which uh you know you can inbreed a line so that your genetics are stable meaning that you back cross and um force females to produce male flowers which have pollen and then you can pollinate them take the seeds grow those get rid of all of the plants that have undesirable traits where you're just keeping the plants that only have those desired traits you do that for well it's debatable. I think you need at least 10 generations, if not more, to get rid of all of the undesirable traits. Um, but some people do it for four generations and call it good. Some people just do it for two, call it stabilized, which it totally isn't. But basically, what you're doing is you're creating um, seeds that are homozygous. So both of their alleles on both chromosomes are exactly the same for every single individual. So there's no room for genetic variation because there is none. You're you're fixed, like all of your gen, gen, all of your chromosomes, all of your genes are all fixed. They're all exactly the same. So then you can have seeds that have little to no genetic variation in them um, because it's all been bred out. And that's how you would normally do it. But when a grower or a breeder puts in that much effort where they're doing 12 gen, 10 or 12 generations to breed out all the undesirable traits, it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. Um, and then at the end of the day, when they've got their stable genetic line, there's really no way to register and protect your intellectual property in cannabis. Um, it, they, it's just starting. Um, but historically, if you do all this work and you've got a stable line, somebody can just come along and rename it and say, you know, this is mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, like, you would have no no way to fight that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's valid. We have um we have another episode actually about intellectual property and patenting mm-hmm. cannabis strains and and how challenging that is uh, on both sides. One because the the patent office doesn't really know that much uh, about cannabis and will give patents for um you know uh, maybe a certain genetics that would have like fifteen different phenotypes. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, I think there's a lot of challenges with that intellectual property of cannabis. So, put it, investing all those resources mm-hmm. to own something that you know someone else can just take quite easily is not, from a business or a commercial perspective, doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And so, you know, for for a lot of cannabis breeders, you know, they 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 do the breeding and they come up, they select the phenotypes that they know are the best phenotypes. People are going to love this. They have one plant. They grow that, they clone it, and once 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 they're done with that line, it's gone. And because they don't want to put all that effort and money and just to have it be stolen. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another reason why calling cannabis different cannabis phenotypes, different cannabis genotypes, different cannabis mutts, <laughs> hybrids <laughs> of that's why I think it's good to call them strains because there's really nothing like it. 
Yeah. So I wanted to, I feel like there's this growing dissonance within the cannabis industry that stray names are not effective. And this is something that we've touched on throughout through your, your story with about your friend who wanted to purchase this one strain at one dispensary. And then I think also seeing the genetically defective strain in each group that had the same name, you know, the same blue dream with a g- different um, genome. So what are better ways to what are ways to make the cannabis shopping experience more effective and to give patients and consumers kind of more insight into what they're purchasing beyond the, the strain name? Like, should we be, um, should stores be incorporating, you know, the phenotypes into their brands or, um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this? Like, w- how can we improve this, like this, this experience of purchasing cannabis <laughs> in a dispensary and actually knowing what you're buying? Okay. So I have a few thoughts on this. All right. So first of all, I, I like to give people my cake analogy. So if you had never been into a bakery before, never tasted cake or pie or any of those things, like you lived under a rock your whole life, I don't know. Um, and you walked into a bakery and the baker says, what would you like? And you say, I have absolutely no idea. The baker is going to point you in a couple different directions. So here are my cakes. And you take a look at those. Okay, you know what a cake is. Here are pies. And they're generally, you know, pastry with fruit or something. And then in between these two, we have a cheesecake, which is kind of a hybrid between the two. It's not really a cake. but It's also not really a pie. So that's pretty much analogous to the sativa indica hybrid situation, right? So you say, I don't know from these three things what, what I like because I have never had any of them. So then the, the, the dispensary owner or the bakery owner might say, okay, well, try all three and see which one kind of is your favorite, right? So you taste all three and you, you decide that you do not like cooked fruit that's disgusting and mushy and gross. You do like the cakes, and then the baker can say, okay, so we've got several different kinds of cake. We've got chocolate cake, vanilla cake, strawberry cake, lemon poppy seed cake. Then how do you, then how do you kind of um, whittle that down from there? Well, you can smell them, and you can say, I don't like the smell of that lemon thing. That's not for me. I do like the smell of that chocolate and that vanilla. They smell different, but they seem like those would be tasty to me. So then you buy, you know, a chocolate cake and a vanilla cake, go home and you eat them and you like both of them or you just like the, you know, chocolate cake. Then you might kind of start to be interested in what are the ingredients in these cakes, right? So then that could be, you know, this is, I I don't know if you're following here, but it's very analogous to the whole cannabis shopping experience. You can smell different, you know, you can say, well, um, I don't know if I like indicas or hybrids. So you try one of each and you say, I really didn't like the indica. It made me feel sleepy. I like the sativa much better. Okay, so let's look at the sativas. Smell each one of these and and give me three that you you think you would like. Okay, so then you take those three home and you have the experience with all three of them and you decide, okay, I really like this one. These two I wasn't too hot on because um, this one made me paranoid and this one, um, I don't know. So then you can go back to the dispensary and you can say, okay, so what are the, what's the chemical profiles of these three? So I know what to steer away from and kind of what's my go-to. And maybe it's, maybe it's the linalool that you like. Maybe it's the limonene that's dominant in that particular strain. But here's the kicker. 
right? So you don't get, um, when we're talking about products like this, you don't just jump into the ingredients. That would be something for somebody who has specific needs. Like if you're gluten intolerant, you're going to need to know, is there flour in this? You know, wheat flour, is there wheat flour in this cake? Okay, well, I can't have that. Or I'm allergic to chocolate, so I can't have chocolate cake, but I can have strawberry or lemon coffee seed cake. So that's when you start getting into the ingredients portion. And then, so you decide that you like, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, like apple crumb cake. All right, we all have a picture in our brains of what that might look like. And you might go to a, a bakery in Denver, or you might go to a bakery in um, Australia. Each one has a lemon crumb cake. They might have slightly different ingredients, like let's say one uses cinnamon, one uses nutmeg. I don't know. But basically, they're going to be the same with subtle differences. So that's kind of the difference between, um, you know, Blue Dream. Like, you, they're both Blue Dream, but they were grown in different conditions. So they're going to have slightly different combination of ingredients. Um, and so I think it's important for consumers to kind of get that in their brains that um, just because it's called lemon crumb or, you know, apple crumb cake, doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the same everywhere you go. And there might be a baker who has makes an apple crumb cake that's nothing, nothing like any anybody else's makes. Like, it's just weird. Okay, that happens. But you're aware of it, right? Um, so you can go into a bakery and be like, that's not the apple crumb cake I'm used to. I'm not going to get that. Uh, okay, I, I love your analogy. It makes a lot of sense to me. But my my thought here is that so when you go into a baker, we know all of the ingredients that go into, or at least the baker knows all the ingredients that they put into cake. They know that they put in flour and eggs and stuff. But but I think in cannabis, there's so many compounds that we don't know about yet or that we haven't, you know, quote unquote, discovered, uh, but that still exists within the plant. Right. So, so, so those would be the subtle ingredients that maybe differ from baker to baker where they put their own spin on it. So the, the major ingredients, so the THC, the CBD, the CBC, CBG, the myrcene, linalool, beta um, caryophyllene, like those are all going to be in there in various combinations mm -hmm. um, to make the different kinds of baked goods, to make the different kinds of cannabis that we have. They're going to be in different levels and different combinations. But those are the, the, the main players, right? The smaller... Uh, minor cannabinoids and terpenes, they're in there and they, they could really give you a different product. But those are the subtle differences. And I feel like we don't know enough and we don't we never test for most of the, the, the phytochemicals in cannabis. You know, we only test usually for the major players. And it's some of these subtle differences that could give a huge, they could have a huge effect on the way that they affect people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we know what those things are, which is why I still encourage people to use the broad categories indica and sativa, even though there's really no evidence that we have found yet <laughs> for that split. But we know that there's some incredibly potent cannabinoids and terpenes. For example, they just came, they just discovered the THCP and CBDP, which are 30 times more potent than THC and CBD. And we've overlooked that. We, you know, because we weren't testing for it, we weren't looking for it. It's so so minute in there that it never made a difference to us. But being thirty times potent, more potent, 
yeah, it's going to make a difference, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have any um, suggestions to a patient or a consumer who's newer to cannabis on how to really um, how to really identify what they like about a strain that they're using or what they don't like, like how to kind of educate themselves on that, whether that's through like certain scents that they could identify or certain feelings that they have. Um, and, and that way so that they can, you know, the next time they go to a, a dispensary, they could say, Oh, I really liked, um, this particular terpene or something. Do you have any, any, I guess, suggestions on that? Um, you know, it, we don't know what happens when we have minor changes in combinations and levels of any and all of these phytochemicals. And so just knowing that you know that you like things with mercine in it doesn't mean that strains that are heavy in mercine are all going to work for you. So unfortunately, I feel like for, for people who are looking for medicine, for medicinal qualities, it's just going to be a matter of trial and error for the most part. Like you can start to zero in on the things that you know are helping you just by process of elimination. But for somebody who's never done it before and has no idea, you just kind of have to start from ground zero and, and work your way through to find, and there may be some, you know, medical, um, you know, cannabis medical people that know more about that, but every single person has different chemistry too. So, you know, the idea of, let's say just for simplicity's sake, indica is sedating and relaxing and sativa is uplifting and energizing. Well, that may not be the case for, and it's not the case for every single person. It's just a broad sweeping statement. So for even um, somebody who's giving advice to a patient, Mersin is going to do this for you. That's not always the case. It's not the same for every single person. Everybody has different receptors. They have a number of different numbers of receptors. All kinds of things are going to play into this. So it's not a one size fits all. Like you can't say, oh, for, you know, to treat your anxiety, you're going to have to take linalool because it's not the same for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, unfortunately, it's just going to be a process of elimination and figuring out what you like and then knowing. So let's say for simplicity's sake that you are a patient and Blue Dream works for you. That's the one that you've tried. That's the one that works. You just need to be aware that if you go somewhere than your other, you know, other than your local dispensary where you've been getting your medicine most of the time, if you go to a different dispensary, there is a chance that you're going to end up with something that doesn't do the same thing. So I think mm. part of it is consumer awareness um, and that something that does something for one person is not necessarily going to affect you the same way. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think also part of this process for patients and consumers is trusting their instincts. And, and we talked about this at the beginning, but yeah, if you smell, if you smell a strain and you don't like it, it's probably not going to be the best one for you. Right. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's, that's chemistry that, you know, your chemistry working with the plants chemistry. And if they don't mesh well, chances are the effects aren't going to be really great on you either. So mm -hmm. you should just, yeah, trust your instinct. The nose knows. <laughs> yeah. And I think we also lose that um, with some of these concentrate products now. Yeah. 
because it's hard to it's hard to even know what the underlying strain was before um before it was tra- you know transformed into an edible or a yeah. con- a, a vapor uh, vape cartridge or whatever you know some of these concentrates too um or infused products where they they're putting terpenes back into a product to give it sort of a more you know marijuana feel like mm-hmm. some of these terpenes are like super volatile and irritating so i feel like some people are getting adverse effects from from us trying to mess with it or concentrating it like i i am incredibly I don't know if it's an allergy or what. I'm allergic to once to something, and I think it's linalool, but I'm not willing to smoke a bunch of things to try and figure that out because it makes me cough for hours, and it's it's insane. Like it's it's an allergic reaction. I'm pretty sure, but I don't want to try and figure out what it is. <laughs> right, <laughs> and it's not fun. Um, yeah. So some of these concentrates and um, you know infused products, I feel like can be problematic. Mm-hmm. So I, I know you also did um, a research presentation showing that the THC potency reported on dispensary cannabis flower might be inaccurate due to different testing protocols at different labs. So could you speak more to that? Yeah. So um, there is a huge problem in the cannabis industry that pretty much everybody I think is aware of that there's no standard lab procedures. Um, So each lab is tasked with coming up with their own standard operating procedures, their own methods, validating their own methods, making sure that their methods are producing consistent results. However, lab A versus lab B could have very different operating procedures, methods, validations. They could be using different standards. Um, They could be using different sample prep. And they can have really different results. Um, And there's really no regulatory agency that oversees labs. So there can be tinkering with methods to get higher THC values. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, a lot of prices are set based on THC content, consumers are willing to pay for for pay more for higher THC and dispensaries can set their prices based on the THC content a lot of times. And so there's sort of an incentive for labs to produce higher THC values on their certificates of analysis because it reinforces return customers. So you're more likely to go back to the lab that gave you the results and say that your product was 23% THC versus the lab that came back with 16% THC, even though they were from the same plant. Um, so it's pretty problematic. Um, Have you seen labs kind of play to that strategy or do you think it's not intentional? It's just that they uh, are using different procedures. I know of labs and I'm, I'm never going to call anybody out, but I know there are labs out there that, when you walk through the door and you want your product tested, they'll ask you, what do you expect to see from this? And they'll give you, they will okay. give you the results that you basically you're asking for. Um, there are labs that have multiple protocols um, based on what they're testing and what the results should be. Uh, but like I said, there's no oversight of labs and they can pretty much do what they want. Um, 
there are some and then this is where like third party testing comes in where you get one test and then you get another test and then if those two tests are completely different well then who do you believe first um obviously they've got different methodologies and because they've come up with two different things or they've got different sample you know there's just so many places where this can where labs can come up with different results that it's just it's crazy to me but it is what it is <laughs> at the moment um and you know I'm, there are people who are working towards either bringing awareness to this issue and or trying to address this issue but it's kind of left up to testing facilities to police themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I discovered this and I hadn't really looked into it at all because I really wasn't looking, I was looking at genetic relationships and I wasn't looking at potency, anything. But since I did do that scent analysis, we also, you know, did a, a full, you know, cannabinoid and terpene profile testing. And I noticed that the THC concentration that was returned to me from our facility was really different than what was printed on the label in just about every single case. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. There was one sample that was close um, of the 14 of the 15 samples that I had analyzed. And so I was like, well, maybe, you know, this is a fluke. It's kind of crazy. Um, so then we expanded that study to include 30 samples. Um, and we looked at the potency that was reported on the label. We tested it. And we even tested samples that we tested that, you know, like a year ago. We tested them again because we still had sample left over to make sure there wasn't like degradation over time. And there wasn't uh, if they were stored correctly. So it wasn't an issue of like how old were these samples between when the label was printed out versus when it was tested. Um, every, um, let's see, there was, and what, how much did it differ? Like by so, a few percentage points or significantly of the 30 that we tested only three were within 10%. Um, the average over reporting was 31%. The average over reporting. Yeah. So the, the, this, the percent difference was, 31% of the average. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, for example, one of these samples, let me look. Um, let's see. So, uh, it tested, our test was 17.8% THC. The label said 29.6. Wow, that's pretty significant. So, I think kind of based on that initial study, it is safe to assume that that what, what we purchase in dispensaries here in Colorado probably does have significantly lower levels of THC Yeah, in general. And I think, I mean, not that, I think it's kind of a level playing field. Like, I think it's always been that way or maybe right. worse in the last few years with the over-reporting. But yeah, it's like every single sample, you know, it says 11% or it says 22% and tests at 11%. But what is what's concerning about this is like not only are customers I feel like they're getting overcharged <coughs> excuse me but also um you know we hear these stories about these strains with incredibly high THC and the THC has gone through the roof and uh people are going crazy because they're now smoking 30 percent THC 
um, products. Well, that's not really true. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the, the concern is misdirected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder, because and then on the flip side of that, I mean, it feels it doesn't feel good to get charged for a, a strain that says it's 30% THC when it's really, let's say, 15. But on the flip side, we also don't know, we don't have a lot of research about the bioavailability of cannabis. And, and so how much, you know, how different is the effect really of, you know, if you're having the same amount, let's say, um, of smoking a strain that's 15% versus 25%. Like how much does it really affect you? Do we know about, do we know that? We is there any research on that? I mean, there, there has always been this perception that THC is the one, like that's the one that's going to get you high. Right. Um, but I know people who don't, who, who have a better experience with lower THC, like, tw- you know, this 12% strain is like the best stuff I've ever had or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a study that was done on, um, I think it was done on hash, hashish, and I think it was in India. And it was, it was a, it's an old study, like done back in the seventies. And they had to, like really low grade hashish, mid grade, and then high grade. So different percentages of THC. And they did a blind study. Overwhelmingly, the favorite was the one that was the least THC. They, they consistently, people were like, that's the high quality one. That's the high quality one. That's the high quality one. So it's oh, interesting. Yeah. So it seems to me that there's, I mean, we all know there's definitely more at work here than just THC and purchasing based on THC content alone is, um, is, is, is not, not the wisest way to go. Right. I, I mean, it's kind of adorable to just want to get your money's worth and be like, oh, I need as much THC as possible. <laughs> but it's actually not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily translate to having the best cannabis experience of having right. the highest THC levels for, for a variety of reasons. Right. I mean, if that's really in, you know, I mean, who knows to, who who knows where you're getting your experience from? Because it's not just THC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like basing your decisions based on THC content is kind of a rookie mistake. Um, and I, I get that bud tenders are supposed to be selling, you know, they're selling a product. So of course selling the most expensive product is better than selling, you know, the bottom shelf. But, you know, yeah, like I, there's just so much to experience and there's so many variables and you've got so many things to take into consideration that, um, you know, maybe THC just makes it easy. It's kind of like going to the liquor store and buying the whiskey with the highest alcohol content, you know? Exactly. It's just a standard, <laughs> me- it's just a standard metric that yeah. people can access very easily. It's yeah. just it doesn't the, matter if it's like- <laughs> the more, the better, the higher, the better. It's also, I mean, it also is very much like a very American mentality. Yeah. If you're going to mix your whiskey with Coca-Cola, like who cares? Right, How- right. You know? Here's what it tastes like, but you're, you're going to spend like 20 bucks on a crappy bottle of whiskey that has 40% alcohol versus a really nice bottle of whiskey that you can enjoy and savor. It's going to be like, you know, $70, but, um, only has 20% alcohol or something like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. this is how we make decisions. You got to make decisions somehow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, cool. Well, I want to finish up with kind of a, a fun question and I want to know, in your research going forward, if you could learn one thing about the cannabis plant, what would you like to know? 
honestly, I'm really super intrigued with this idea of epigenetics. Like, I want to know, just, just the pheno, how are we getting different phenotypes, especially when we're using clones? And growing conditions don't vary that much. Um, so I would love to do, like, growing clones in different regions of the country, let's say Colorado versus California versus Florida in the outdoor growing conditions and seeing how much, uh, you know, the phenotype changes in very various environmental conditions. And I think that would be really important to, you know, as we're talking about cannabis, we're mostly talking about marijuana, right? We're talking about dispensaries and medical cannabis, mm -hmm. but this is also really important for the hemp industry. So the, you know, where we're getting all our CBD from they have to keep their crops under 0.3% THC. And if there's a strain that's developed in Oregon, it's probably not going to perform as well in Florida. And it will likely go hot. It'll go over the limit of THC, which is problematic because once you go over, you have to destroy your crop. Um, so I feel like I would love to come up with sort of zones, grow zones, where if you grow, you know, if, if you are purchasing some sort of seed or clone that is, been developed in grow zone one here's the places where you grow that and it will stay phenotypically or genotypically consistent um i would i'm really interested in that and the other thing i'm really interested in is um tweaking environmental conditions and finding out what sort of things are most influencing changes in phenotype so is it water is it light is it co2 is it uh nutrients all that kind of stuff. And um, if it's actually epigenetic changes that are happening um, or exactly what is the mechanism that's leading to the plant freaking out and producing a different phenotype. Yeah. Cool. Well, that all sounds so interesting. Um, well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and I'm really looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Yeah, I had such a good time. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.